Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics, and ending the stigma through educational discussions. Today, we have Allison Fiducia from Psychedelic Support. When Allie was a teenager, she had a confusing experience with LSD. And to make meaning from her journey, she dedicated her studies to exploring the mind and consciousness. Allie earned a PhD in neuropharmacology in 2009 from the University of Texas at Austin and her postdoc at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. This led to her working at MAPS for five years as a senior clinical data scientist, which included clinical trials for MDMA therapy. In 2017, Allison co-founded Psychedelic Support, a website that includes a network of healthcare professionals who offer service online and in person for psychedelic and plant medicine integration, transformative preparation, psychological and physical health, and personal growth. The organization also offers professional psychedelic educational courses with continuing education for health professionals. In addition, Allison is also a founding member of Project New Day, a newly founded 501c3 nonprofit organization that invests in research, treatment programs, and community-supported recovery and integration services to help people overcome addiction and actualize mental health through the responsible and legal use of psychedelics. Welcome, Allie. Hi. This is such a great opportunity to be on the vine with with you all. Yes. So welcome, Allie. We always like to start off getting to know more about our guest. And we heard that you've built your professional career around trying to understand an experience when you were young and just wondered if you could tell us more about that. Sure. So my first foray with psychedelics was back when I was in high school. And at this time, you know, way back in the dinosaur age of 1995, <laughs> there wasn't much um, resources or education to really know what psychedelic experiences were all about. Most of what we knew came from watching movies like Days to Confused and uh, getting into some of the psychedelic rock that was popular back in the 60s and 70s. And so um, myself and some other um Girls and I decided to take some LSD before going to a Sadie Hawkins dance together at our high school. And, you know, our, our impressions were that we would see some twinkly lights and, you know, have a good time. And, and it did start off that way. But after we had left the dance, uh, we uh, were going to some, a different party and someone offered me another hit of LSD and I took it. And from there, things just started to get really, um, like I was losing touch with people and the conversations and then things were going dark and I was getting confused. And then I didn't remember a lot after that until waking up in the hospital with um, my parents there by my side. And I had had this incredible experience of being out of my body and reviewing past lives and past experiences of my own life and just a really transpersonal classic psychedelic trip where I, I left my body and I interacted with other beings in the universe and came back into my body through a rebirth of my own, um, my own birth in this life. And I woke up to that and my experience was a complete contrast to what other people 
had shared with me of what had gone on. I had sort of what was like a classic bad trip of acting out and being very confused and my friends being very concerned and, and they called an ambulance because they thought I was, you know, going to harm myself or others. And of course, I ended up getting into a lot of trouble with like my parents and the school and um, and my friends got in trouble. So the whole experience was really, really uh, traumatic for me. And, you know, on the one hand, I didn't want to share this uh, amazing journey I had taken and because I didn't feel like there was any context for that within the situation that I found myself with my peers and my my family and my school. Um, but it really sparked this interest of like, what was that? Like, that wasn't what they showed in the movies. And, you know, maybe I took some other substances or, or maybe I, I had a near death experience. So I was reading books at the library, trying to make sense of this experience I had. And I never, I had a lot of shame around it too. You know, of course, I'm getting my friends in trouble and, and trying to, to, to move past that. I got really curious and like, well, how could it be that just that tiny little drop of LSD opened up this whole spiritual world, like within myself and outside of myself. And I really got interested in, in other Eastern religions and philosophy and trying to make sense of all this. But really where it led me was to, to, to focus on the brain and, and how do substances interact in the brain to cause uh, these huge effects. And is it possible that we could access these states of being without substances? Because really, it's the substance is doing something within our own mind and body. And I wanted to understand how could we activate that in other ways? And what are these substances really doing on like a neurobiological uh, way? So that led me um, to, to graduate school. And, you know, the work we're doing now with psychedelic support really is um, reflective of that journey that I had long ago when I didn't have, you know, good education or resources or even the concept of like integration therapy hadn't reached Louisiana where I was growing up in Baton Rouge back in the nineties. Uh, so it's always been a big uh, part of my story to, to want to help others be more informed so that they can make better choices and, and not run into, um, which unfortunately is, is not an uncommon story for new users of psychedelics. So I just have to jump in and ask one question, age old. So as a scientist, I believe that it opens us to, I'm not a scientist. I believe that it opens us up to be able to see more than we can see in a normal state of being human. But is the drug literally changing our brain or is it doing that thing? Is it opening us, changing our brain in a way to see things that we can't ordinarily see? Yeah, so some of the early theories dating back to like the 40s and the 50s, they talked about this reducing valve concept. Adolf Huxley was uh, pretty famously talked about this idea of psychedelics removing a filter around our brain that constrains us from really knowing what uh, the true nature of reality is and that our five senses and what we can perceive is really limited uh, to the architecture of our brain and our uh, neuronal firing. Um, and some of that has actually been validated now with recent neuroimaging studies that are showing that 
uh, the default mode network and uh, becomes disintegrated and brain regions that normally aren't talking to each other become connected and are communicating under the experience of classical psychedelics. So this might be a similar to the metaphor of the reducing valve of maybe what's happening is this constraints around how the brain can perceive reality or are shifting into a different framework so that people really may be experiencing something greater that's out there, but it's really unknown as it's still just uh, our own mind producing these experiences. But from what I've, what I've gone through, you know, I, I've never had any dreams as vivid or imaginations that come anywhere close to what the type of uh, visions or perceptual changes can occur under psychedelics. So I think it's an open-ended question of how do they work in the brain and, and what it, I think more importantly, what does it mean for us in, in normal states of consciousness? So now after you've gone through this experience as a young person and then got all of this education and even worked within the field for so many years, what are your feelings currently about the use of psychedelics in a sense of just adult use and not necessarily used for therapy? Yeah, so I think it's uh, good to think about the different frameworks where psychedelics are used. Right now, we're, there's a lot of clinical trials happening, going through the FDA regulatory process to bring these compounds into clinicians' office, offices to be used in conjunction with psychotherapy or supportive care. You know, another framework is in religious or religious settings or church contexts. Uh, this dates back to uh, some of the indigenous use in uh, Peru, where ayahuasca was used in healing ceremonies, and that eventually made it out to mestizo-type traditions that combined uh, religious practices with like Christianity-based Christianity practices with some of the indigenous uh, cultures, uh, traditions. And from there, you know, there's two... Uh, churches in the United States right now that have federal recognition to use ayahuasca within their church. And there's lots of other uh, communities that are practicing now with ayahuasca and wish to be federally recognized as uh, legitimately um, serving these medicines as part of their uh, spiritual practices. And then the other framework is um, more community-based or or in recreational settings and festival type settings and how uh, psychedelics are, are being um, taken with other people and, and used in a celebratory way or as a way of connecting with others around the shared experience. And so I, I can see the value of each of these models. And when I think about these different models too, it's, it's about, they offer different things and, they also present different risks for users of psychedelics. You know, in the controlled clinical settings, there's a lot of parameters set forth to mitigate risk, and that has to do with screening people for contraindicated conditions and medications. There's well-trained providers that are credentialed and have experience working with altered states of consciousness. And then the drug itself is pure in pure form. And so when we move to some of these other frameworks, especially the um, non-medical recreational settings, uh, right now, it's, there's no regula regulated supply of drugs. So people 
have to worry about adulterants and fentanyl contamination is a real thing. So um, that's on the rise of people overdosing uh, on opioids that are mixed into other drugs or it, if into opioids that they might be taking for, for other reasons. Um, so as these frameworks, um, as we look across these different frameworks, you know, I, I don't really have an opinion whether or not one is the best way. I think individuals themselves may gravitate to some of these different um, frameworks, but for sure, it seems like if people have a mental health condition, that going to uh, providers that have this training and if you're spending the money to undergo these type of treatments to, to really be working with evidence-based treatments, ones that have been uh, approved by the FDA that have good safety parameters in place and uh, is probably a, a really most safest way for people to, to access psychedelics. And as this really unfolds more, I do see that the community-based programs, whether it's in a church setting or in some sort of groups that get approved to, to use psychedelics as part of their practices, that will be a really good uh, opportunity for more cost-effective ways of people to undergo psychedelics and also have this long-term supportive community so that the experience itself can be live longer than just the effects of the drug. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing that you run psychedelic support with your husband. Um, I think that's always a complicated thing. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us how you will build this platform for professionals and for the general public. Sure. So back in 2017, I was working at MAPS at the time on the clinical research team and on their therapist training program. And I was connecting more with therapists who were really expressing an interest of having a, a place for them to, to come out professionally as offering integration services. And so this is all above ground uh, practitioners and, and the services that they're offering. And so we decided to, um, after a lot of discussion and what could we do, like to help uh, elevate the professionalism of these providers and help people in need connect with them, we decided to create this platform where providers could put up a profile in their image and link off to their websites as a way of sig sig signaling that they're open-minded towards people that use these substances and that they're there to, to help support difficult experiences as well as people that might want to use what they've learned and the experiences and work with that more during therapy and counseling. And so in working with my husband, um, he's a software engineer and a really brilliant mind. And so together with our background and experience, we're really able to work well together. And we're basically like super geeks <laughs> talk about you know, data and psychedelics and web platforms and techie kind of stuff and what's the, the newest uh, code and, and frameworks that are coming out. And, you know, so a lot of it is uh, based on our own interest and passion and, and just also wanting to, to do something good in the world. I mean, psychedelics in this movement is really calling people to, you know, step it up. And, and if you have skills and things that you can offer, um, however big or small that is, there's lots of ways to do that. And we wanted to really have a, 
have a place for people to to access this care if needed. And, and like I said, it, it dates back to to the crazy trip I had back when I was 15 and, and not really having that resources and, and seeing the hype from the media is drawing a lot more people to experiment and the need for good education and resources is only becoming more and more important. So you have a professional offering, you do the continuing education courses for um, professionals and then you also do some things for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I'm excited to say we're going to have a free harm reduction course that's coming out uh, later this month in March. And this is going to be a course that's really geared towards the general public. And we look at the effects of drugs, dosage, the different environments where people might be taking psychedelics, and just some good uh best practices and questions for people to think about before they go out to a festival or an international retreat or a ceremony, some questions they can get aligned with themselves, the group they're going to be uh, doing psychedelics with, and how they can best prepare and integrate after. So that's one course we have coming out soon. And some of the courses that are already available on the platform or some really, really deep dives into the MDMA and psilocybin research trials. And these are, uh, yes, geared towards professionals who want to start understanding what psychedelic medicine is all about and what the research has said. And so we cover topics like pharmacology, effects, safety within clinical and non-clinical settings. We look at psychological and neurobiological mechanisms, as well as all the clinical trials that have been looking at MDMA and psilocybin for different indications. So these courses are a, a great place for people to get the foundational information they need. And then, you know, from there, some people, providers will want to go through the full training programs to, to be able to administer these drugs if they get approved by FDA. Um, but a lot of providers won't uh, do that specialization and yet they all have clients coming to them. They may be referring people to psychedelic uh, providers. And so these courses really give everyone like a good understanding of what's been published. It covers like over 450 peer reviewed publications. And we did it a really cool design and animation to, to make some sometimes dry content be more lively and accessible um, to the average person. And so instead of having to read a lot of research papers, you can take this course and it's all, uh, takes you through an instructional design with some really great graphics, information uh, taken down into bite-sized chunks per slide. And we also interviewed a number of researchers, therapists, other professionals that have worked on these clinical trials or at major universities like Stanford, Yale, UCSF, to bring in a, a varied perspective around this topic of psychedelic medicine. The other thing we have on the site is um, we wanna help promote other great trainings and workshops from other professionals in the field. So right now we have uh, Polaris Institute's uh, well, sorry, Polaris Insight Center offers a clinician training for ketamine-assisted therapy. And so this is a live five-module course people can take if they want to start using ketamine in their clinical practices. 
Um, the other one is how to start and operate a psychedelic clinic. And uh, this is led by Dr. Scott Shannon, who uh, is, has experience with working with MDMA back in the early 80s before it was banned and has a uh, large practice outside of, uh, or I think it's in Fort Collins, Colorado. And so they've really gone through, and he's, he's the MDMA therapist and, and ketamine therapist too. So they've really gone through the steps to set up a practice and to know how to work with the DEA to get the approvals, how to set up all this security they needed to, to work with these drugs. And then also the, the protocols of working with patients and how to make the intake and patient management go really well. So that's a, a really great offering that they've put out there. So we're trying to elevate other people's offerings so that more people can can learn and and get prepared for the psychedelic space that's that's quickly coming upon us. And so if there are practitioners, healthcare providers that are listening today, how could they get involved with being a part of the actual network? Because I, I know from like a user's perspective, it's really great. You go to psychedelic.support as the URL, and you can put in your city, and then it'll tell you who are the practitioners right there close to you. So I know that we need some more Pittsburgh PA practitioners on this list, uh, since that's where I live. I'd love to see it in my hometown. But if there's uh, listeners, you know, what is the process like for for your organization to allow for one of these practitioners to be a part of your network? Yeah, so people can just go to the site and contact our info box. And from there, we do a screening process. We require all the providers to be licensed. And so we check to make sure they have valid licenses from a credentialed board that's overseen by a board. And from there, we check out uh, websites and, and public profiles. And if people seem aligned with, with our values, we require everyone to be working above ground and not offering uh, illegal substances. And if, that, if that's a fit for us, then uh, we do an interview to verify people's identity, and then they can join the network for free, and they can have a public profile. Or if providers want to just also be able to access our um, speaker and professional networking series that we host once a month. And we also send out a professional newsletter. They're welcome to join in without having a public profile. Some people, it's still, it's still a very gray area in this profession. And by having these professionals come together, it does help legitimize this field and the services being offered. But at the same time, you know, I understand why some professionals are still, they want to learn, but they're not, don't have enough information yet, or um, not quite comfortable yet putting their name out there associated with psychedelic integration or, or ketamine. So uh, we invite uh, people in to learn more. And if they want to, to put a profile up, you know, we can help them connect with clients that way. The other thing we offer is a, a private Slack for our network so people can can share information and network with other providers there. That's awesome. Um, so we're curious about your thoughts around where trip sitters, guides, shamans fit into this psychedelic renaissance and, and how does it, how does it integrate with the medical community? Sure. You know, it's all happening and evolving so fast now you know, just a few years ago, we were just talking about the medical model in the United States for the large part. And a lot of the sitters, guides, shamans are acting, um, they're are providing their services in what's called underground or unsanctioned 
uh, setting. So there's, it's not legal. It's, it's, um, there's no board oversight. And I do see that a lot of these practitioners um, are, are people that have had a lot of experience with psychedelics and found a lot of healing and positive transformation and want to help others on their path. And I think there are some wonderful people out there that don't fit into the medical model, but fit into this other more traditional model of community-based offerings. And I think that's a, a really beautiful uh, space that's developing. Um, but at the same time, there are greater risk because psychedelics can put people in a vulnerable state. Historically, there have been cases of sexual assaults, either um, with therapists or amongst ceremony provider facilitators. And so, you know, I think until there is some way that um, there could be more transparency around the services offered, what type of uh, credentials should people really carry? And if people get out of line, is there some repercussions to make sure the bad actors aren't able to work with people uh, in this space? So for us in our platform, Psychedelic Support, right now we have the network and it's licensed providers and clinics. We do now have a section called community and there we have community groups and they have a profile too. And so in the future, we would like to add, um, you know, coaches or guides and sitters as that becomes legally available um, and some type of way, some type of grievance process too, which will hopefully be like a larger, you know, board oversight than, and then just something we could provide. Cause I mean, we could always remove someone off our site, um, but that still doesn't necessarily remove someone from practicing. And so more about our, our legal, um, well, about being as safe as we can right now is, is why we focus on these licensed providers. But I, as I said, I think that there are a lot of people with other skill sets that are going to play a huge role in how people access and, and integrate psychedelic experiences. It seems like what we're hearing so much from the guides, the, tri the trip sitters is that, you know, integration is so important. And so where, you know, maybe if even if someone does have the funds to be able to do one of these treatments that when they're done with maybe their ketamine treatment or when they're done with their MDMA, where do they go to now when the session's done? And so I do I, like I'm, I feel like there could definitely be a space where the two can blend and work together because I feel that, you know, there's so much community around folks that really want to continue to talk about their experiences long afterwards when they, you know, maybe something else triggers in their life and they want to talk about it more. But when you're thinking from the more of the traditional sense of integration in a medical setting, can you explain what that looks like for someone that would maybe undergo some of the psychedelic therapy? Sure. I can give the example of the MDMA assisted psychotherapy model. So there's three 90-minute preparatory sessions and then generally two to three MDMA sessions that are spaced a month apart. And in that month in between, there's three integration sessions with the therapy team. And, and really it's within you know, the structure of a package of MDMA and integration sessions that allows them to really go deep into, um, you know, if it's for trauma, they can have a lot of experiences under the MDMA, but integration is about like what, what happened there and then how can I use that information in my life or, or what are my, how does that work with my goals or my aspirations? So the therapist can really help people make meaning. They can help people plan out a course of action to, to 
to get to the place they want to be. And also a lot of, um, you know, it could really be anything in the integration sessions. It's very tailored to the individual. And so I think outside of, you know, this framework, like you're saying, this, these sessions end, or at least in the study, you know, it's a hard stop after collect the primary endpoint data. And what we've heard from many participants is, you know, they wanted to continue the therapeutic process. It opens a lot of doors for people of their own understanding of their trauma and themselves. And that isn't really a time block process that happens. And so this idea of the community support, the community groups tacking on to after the intensive therapeutic work that's going to happen with clinicians makes a lot of sense. And we can talk more about the addiction work that we're doing with Project New Day, but this was a lot of our thinking there too, is, you know, with addiction problems, like usually it's, we don't think it's just going to be, you take psilocybin twice and, and then all of a sudden your problems are gone. It's really about recrafting your whole life, like your friends, who you associate with, where you go, where you spend your time. And what can happen is people feel isolated or depressed as they're making those changes in their life. So building community with a shared component and psychedelic experiences give that shared and, and bonded experience, even if people aren't necessarily together when they take the psychedelic, is a way to, to bring people together on their shared path in recovery. And I think that applies too for, for other um, conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, some of the MAPS trials there organically was some participants that found each other and wanted to connect after and to continue that process together because they understood what they had each been through. And there's a study too that went on at UCSF where they had um, a group of HIV AIDS survivors, all men, all gay men that underwent individual psilocybin sessions. And then they came together as a group for integration and group processing. And it sounds like that was a, a phenomenal way for them to support each other and also share and learn from, e from each other's experiences. So I do think we'll see a lot more of those models being introduced because it, it will make it more cost effective and quite likely it'll just make it more efficacious as well. I'm just wondering, you know, for people, I'll say like myself, who are just sort of your average person who's, you know, SSRIs and wants to change that, um, you know, it seems that, and it, as it should be for people that are really suffering from PTSD and they can't live their life. Um, but how long do you think it's going to come before it's, it's more mainstream, that it's not so cost prohibitive? Yeah. So we're still a few years out from any of these drugs getting FDA approved. And you know, it's hard to say what's going to happen with decriminalization in these different cities and state initiatives like Oregon is on track to have their psilocybin program available within two years. So this would give in alternative settings outside of clinics where people will be able to access psilocybin. And so it's hard to it's hard to really pinpoint when this will be widely available. I know a big bottleneck, too, is the number of practitioners that will be trained and up and operating by the time the medications are available. And, you know, people are 
getting wind of this and wanting to try it or find underground providers. And, um, you know, it's really hard when people hear the promising stories and read the publications and the media reports and have been suffering a long time and they want to try this now. So it's, it's still, you know, it's caution, I think, warrants a lot of caution. And if you have to taper off medications, like if you're on SSRIs, you know, that can be a difficult process to go through and, and certainly something to do with a medical professional. So we're at this really weird time, place in time where, yeah, you could go to other countries and legally access psychedelics. You could, you know, go to underground practitioners, but these aren't without risk. It's especially if you're trying to address like an underlying condition that you have and you want to see long-term benefit and outcomes. There's also a lot of people thinking about this piece of access and, you know, how's that going to be affordable for um, marginalized communities, people that have already lack access to medical care and treatments. And is this just going to be, you know, available to privileged people that can afford it? And insurance coverage is going to take a while, if ever, that they would cover uh, these treatments. So a lot of people are honing in on, on that specific topic, but I really think it's an issue that the community really needs to address at large. And how can we come together to make sure it's a equitable and accessible framework for that works for everyone? Let's talk a little bit about your nonprofit. Project New Day. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about it and how they can get involved or support you? Yeah, so about two two years ago, I got in touch with Mike Signord. He's the founder and CEO of Specialized Bicycles and a philanthropist in the psychedelic space. And he's had um, you know people close to him suffer from addiction and just seeing how the conventional treatments were, were really failing. For, for a number of people. And he started reading up and learning about the space of psychedelics and, and there's some trials going on for psilocybin, for alcohol use disorders and nicotine dependence, a lot of interest in using Ibogaine for opioid use disorder. So he came to me and he said, what can we do? You know, He said, I wanna start a foundation. I want to people to be able to benefit from these treatments. I wanna know more, we should know more about them through research. And if this is a legitimate path for people to use in their recovery, then we need to make sure everyone knows that this is a, this is an available treatment that's going to be here for people to get better and stay better. And it's not just about um, you know it's not just about taking drugs because that's confusing for some people that you would use a psychedelic drug to treat an addiction problem is a little bit counterintuitive, but. Once you start learning more about attentional use and using motivational therapy or other talk therapy type techniques with psychedelics, then it becomes a framework where it allows people to, to really find a deeper motivation or might be the neurobiological effects too, that especially with Ibogaine to mitigate opioid withdrawal symptoms, it might just be like a push up to help people on their path in recovery. Um, so we started this nonprofit and we really want to, it's a long-term vision, you know, and we really see that the accessibility piece we we're just talking about is something that Project New Day uh, could help address. And so we are looking at ways, maybe in Oregon or um, whatever the future may hold for different clinics or retreats 
where people could come and be treated or to come stay for a while and be be there for a more holistic approach with using psychedelics as as a part in the recovery process and with others that are going through a shared experience. So that really excites us to, to think about where these treatments might be in a few years. But in the meantime, um, there are people already using psychedelics on their own and addressing uh, problems that they might have with habitual use of substances or, or other um, like gambling, sex addiction, any of these topics could potentially be a fit for psychedelic therapy. And so there are some groups, peer-led recovery groups, one of them is called Psychedelics in Recovery. Another one is um, led by Danielle Negrin of the San Francisco Society for Psychedelics, um, who leads a recovery group. So they have uh, in-person and online groups where they allow people to join them in, in sharing their experience and so for the foundation, we, we met with them and, and did some observation and needs assessments to understand what they were doing in these groups and how might we amplify their efforts and also help other people start these peer-led recovery groups. Because traditional models like Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, it's really abstinence-based. And so using psychedelics or cannabis doesn't really fit into their uh, philosophy. So this need for another framework that works really well, community support is an excellent way for, for people to keep on path with, their, with where they're heading. And we wanted to support people with trainings, toolkits, educational resources, so that these groups can really proliferate over time and become uh, really accessible. Like anybody, you know, People are joining now from all over the world. They've mostly, because of COVID, you know, been hosting things online. Uh, so it's it's really beautiful to see the community come together in that way. And it's something we hope to to be part of the mission of Project New Day is the treatments, the, the education and community resources, and then also the advocacy and research piece. And so uh, Mike has another foundation. It's called Outride. And this is something they started about uh, eight years ago, where they have kids that ride, that have ADD, they ride bicycles after school in programs. And so they have about 50,000 kids participating now. And so they also did some uh, studies at Stanford to look at the brains before and after the bicycling programs and how, um, you know, using exercise can really help with symptoms of ADHD. And so I you know, I think Mike really sees a lot of parallels with what we can do with Project New Day of, you know, helping to develop a model, to study that model, to get our feedback, to improve the model, and then help it to spread to other people and places to, um, to really move this mission forward. And we're, you know, calling in other people to join us with Project New Day. And there's a lot of talk amongst psychedelic companies about wanting to give back if they're successful with their ventures. And we really see that uh, Project New Day could be a great place for uh, people to donate funds and for us to work collectively in making sure that people in need can access these treatments and access good programs that, that we're going to be spear spearheading. And um, that's something that Psychedelic Support has committed to a, a large equity stake for the uh, nonprofit. And it's something 
we feel really proud about because there's a lot of talk in the space about um, giving back to the community and, you know, how does the capitalistic model fit into psychedelics? And to me, it makes a, it's a clear path. Like sure. Companies can make money there. I don't see anything wrong with that. We can, we can all be doing well while doing good in the world and that there's new avenues where people can, you know, put their money where their, where their mouth is. And and we're going to be setting that up and giving a a really good place for people to feel confident that uh, the work we're doing is, is mission-based and, you know, welcome to feedback and, and collaboration with others on that. I'm curious with your, your, when you were talking about the, the psychedelic addiction groups and things like that, do they consider cannabis a part of the psychedelics? Because I've heard so often that, you know, a lot of like in the state of Pennsylvania, for example, cannabis, um, I'm sorry, um, if you have an opioid addiction, that constitutes one of the reasons why you can get your medical marijuana card in the state. Yet, if you use cannabis, you're not able to go through the programs that you need to deal with your addiction. Like you're saying, you know, if it's AA or, you know, narcotics and all they don't want you to take anything. So I'm curious if, if cannabis is considered a psychedelic in this case and added to that, or if it's going to be kind of separated and really focused on plant medicines outside of it. Yeah. Well, people group a lot of things under this (laughs) psychedelic classification and mind manifesting can really mean a lot of things. And so to your point about, you know, abstinence-based groups, that's one path and that really works for some people. Uh, other people are looking at ways to be in right relationship with the substances they use or the practices they undertake. And for many, I think cannabis fits into that. So if it can bring benefit to them where they're no longer using opioids and having problematic issues arise in their life because of because of their use, then and that's a really great option for some people. You know, they so, <laughs> have some, uh, heard in a talk by uh, Philippe Lucas from Tilray, you know, he said, you know, cannabis isn't a gateway drug, it's a gateway out. And they've done a study to show that, that people can stop using harmful opioids and use cannabis with a lot better quality of life. And really, a lot of medications are based on that too, like Suboxone or Methadone. Like these are still, um, you know, drugs that are replacing another drug use in a less harmful way. So it's not so um, hard to think about it in this way. From a, it's already in practice medically, and and so you know maybe over time too, groups will like AA might you know, start adapting to modern times and what is showing to be evidence-based improvements. Um, But at the same time, you know, anything can be habitual and become problematic. So microdosing psychedelics might become psychologically uh, dependent on people. Um, We don't really know. There's not enough research there. So I do think anybody like approaching psychedelics that have a history of substance use disorder should be uh, really careful and cautious. Um, drugs like ketamine have a higher risk of dependence than psilocybin. So if if people are going to be approaching these drugs and they just think all psychedelics aren't addictive, it's it's really you know new more nuanced in why it might be really important for these groups to be providing psychoeducation as well as community support. 
Well, I think that everyone now needs to go to psychedelic.support so you can see for yourself this amazing growing community of professionals, as well as some education that those of us that are not in the healthcare profession, but are interested in learning more about this, there are going to be courses like Ali mentioned that will be available for free. So we can go ahead and take those ourselves. But if you're a practitioner and you're listening in, or if you know somebody and you're willing to come out of the chemical closet and say, yes, I wanted this to be a part of what I'm doing, you could absolutely you know, reach out to Ali and her team and get listed on the website. But if you're not quite ready for that, still taking the courses and being a part of the community, I think is a really great first step. And the fact that you're creating a safe space for practitioners to learn from one another and to create that really great safe space is something that's so needed in the industry. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on The Vine. Allie, thank you. Thank you. This was such a great opportunity and I appreciate all the work that you all are doing in this space to to help people really understand what's going on. And I will mention too, we have a free course that's up already in Introduction to Psychedelics. And there's a lower price point for just the general public if they want to take our MDMA and psilocybin courses. And it's a great place for students to get started or people that just want to really deepen their knowledge on the like scientific factual basis of what these compounds are. So yeah, come, come join us. We'd, we'd love to have more practitioners in our network. And uh, if you're Looking for a good health professional, I think this is a, a great site to check out. So thanks so much for, for this time. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of our listeners as well for joining us on another episode of The Vine, a plant media project podcast featuring Allison Fiducia from Psychedelic Support. For cannabis and psychedelic news, visit us online at plantmediaproject.com. <laughs>